2: J.A.M. Been walking us down through That 2012 edition So it ain't nothing to you Hundreds more to go And in need of a friend The King of these for Angelo Talking the 500 until the end Talking the 500 until the end With my man J.A.M. On the 500, talking the 500 until the end Now
1: he's up above my head Hanging by your little friend What is, is this guy love? What
2: is this guy sounding like? Bam, 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 I should get paid, because they are stealing my voice for this song. It's a travesty police army, I want a revolution, I want you to be seditious, and I want an insurrection. On The Who, mainly John Entwistle for stealing my voice. The song is Boris the Spider, it wasn't my voice, but it's from The Who, from the 1966 sophomore record, a quick one. And it's also number 384 out of 500 on the 500 with Josh Adam Myers. What's up, everybody? How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? doing? Please, Army. The cadugly Spooglies. How is everybody? You guys good? Did everybody watch Roadhouse because we had John Doe on? I watched it three times this week because after talking to John Doe, I was like, dude, this movie is fucking ripping. If you haven't watched the podcast, guys, just let you know we have a dope YouTube channel where you can subscribe and you can watch all the videos on Thursday, the day after they are released on our Patreon on Wednesday. So go to Josh Adam Myers, my personal YouTube, subscribe, watch all the videos of all my guests and me talking about what album and whatever. And if you guys want it on Wednesday, join our Patreon five dollars a month we need your help guys we are it's 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 literally sponsors and y'all and if you love this podcast hook us up patreon.com backslash the 500 podcast so this is our first who record i'm a fan i've seen them live i don't know everything about them released on december 9th 1966 on reaction polydor in the uk and deca and mca in the u.s produced by kit lambert this is the second studio album from the who Roger Daltrey, Pete Townsend, and John Entwistle all attended Acton County Grammar School in Acton, London, England in the later 50s. Daltrey was a grade older and was expelled at 15 for bad behavior. He took a job in construction and formed the band The Detours to play professional gigs in 1959, acting as their lead guitarist and manager. Both of Pete's parents were musical and encouraged his interest in rock and roll and the guitar. John started on French horn, Les Moines, Then a short attempt at guitar, but due to his fat fingers, he settled on bass. Ah, I love that. He had some chubby digits. One day, Roger saw John walking with his bass case. That's fun to say. Base case and asked him to join the detours in 1961 john suggested pete who had graduated and was then in art school to be the detours rhythm guitarist they gained popularity got a real manager and started opening for bigger bands after discovering another band called the detours they changed their names to purposefully confusing name the who Soon, they added Wembley, London, England native Keith Moon, a high-energetic, powerful, and animated drummer. Their new manager, Peter Meaden, tailored them to represent the new mod trend that was sweeping London. Mods rode Vespa scooters, were very style and close-conscious, and adored American R&B and soul music. In 1964, filmmakers Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp were looking for a young, unsigned band to make a movie about, and found The Who who were now very popular due to their dynamic and often wildly destructive stage shows. They encouraged Pete to write songs, and the band got signed to a production deal with successful American producer, Shell Talmay. Aside from trying to emulate successful singles by rival groups like the Kinks and the Beatles, their songs were also filled with provocative, idiosyncratic, rebellious, and surprisingly mature themes and featured lots of interesting musical techniques like guitar feedback, wildly off-kilter drums, stuttering vocals, and the bass played like a lead instrument. After a few more popular singles on a new label and lots of fighting, their manager secured them a songwriting publishing deal for their anticipated second album, which dictated every member had to write two songs so they could all get paid well and help cover the cost of repairs for all those broken stage instruments. They wrote and recorded several tracks, but after realizing they were still almost 10 minutes short of a full album, so Townsend wrote a long, multi-part song that he would deem his first rock opera and give the record its title. The record was another hit in the UK and did well in America, which added their hit pre-album single Happy Jack and retitled the album after it. They released six more albums in the years that followed, including the highly regarded rock opera Tommy in 69. Then, tragically, drummer Keith Moon died of a drug overdose in 1979 at the age of 32. 2002, bassist John Entwistle died of a cocaine-induced heart attack at 57. Despite various extended hiatuses in the 80s and 90s, Pete and Roger ultimately carried on recording and touring with various added musicians. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1990, received Lifetime Achievement Awards from the British Phonographic Industry, and the Grammy Foundation have sold over 100 million records worldwide and remain one of the most influential rock and roll bands of all time. Today, I have one of the most influential rock and roll writers of all time. My guest today is my former employee. I was this guy's boss on the Comedy Jam on Comedy Central. The genius, the lovely, the gorgeous David Wilde. He was a contributing editor at Rolling Stone Magazine and the Huffington Post and Esquire. He's written books all up the wazoo he's also been a writer on the grand old opry the grammys that's coming up uh on march 14th on cbs hosted by trevor noah he is the man and also he wrote on the comedy channel like i said a minute ago this was really cool because i love it when they know more than me i love it when somebody knows their shit Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to the 500 and listen free on all platforms. If you're listening on Apple, leave us a five-star rating and leave us a review right now. Do it now. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Go to com for all my shows and videos and everything thursday february 4th i will be back at soul joel's comedy club in royersford pennsylvania headlining it is twenty dollars and on february 2nd i will be at helium philadelphia with mark norman shane gillis it's gonna be wild I'm pretty sure that one's sold out. So why don't you get tickets to the Royersburg Show? I want to see all the Jersey, Pennsylvania, Police Army at that show. Tickets are at joshadammyers.com. Email the podcast at 500 Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, tell us if you like the show, if you hate the show, whatever. Follow the Facebook group. And this is something I want to tell you guys. Follow the Facebook group, the 500 Podcast with Jam, uh, run by Crazy Evan. I want you guys to tell me how you feel about the album. So on the Facebook group, guys, go to the Facebook group, join it, and then underneath the album, write what you think about the record and and especially about my review, whatever, and I'll read that shit On the podcast the next week, but you gotta do it. Go to the Facebook group under the album, write your review. Did you like it? Did you hate it? What's the funniest part? I don't give a fuck. Just put it on there. This is a community, and I wanna hear your voice just as much as you probably wanna hear mine. For all things 500, guys, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Welp. Nothing left to say, but here we go with number 384 out of 500 with a quick one by the Hoo! What's up, Fleece Army? Before we get into this episode, I want to ask you a question. Do you use Kratom? If you don't know what Kratom is, it is an herbal supplement. It's kind of like CBD, not from the hemp plant, from the coffee family. I've been taking it for two years. It is an incredible energy booster. Gets rid of my anxiety. Helps me stay focused. And the company I'm talking about is Super Speciosa, and they are making some of the highest-grade kratom in the world. Most kratoms have a bunch of junk in them. Super Speciosa, clean and natural. Super Speciosa only contains one ingredient, kratom leaves crushed into powder. That's it. Every single batch put through a natural cleaning process to eliminate germs to protect you. Kratom is then tested, sifted, blended, screened for potency, and carefully packaged in a lab-grade facility. And Super Speciosa has created this system to make sure you are 100% getting the best, most natural kratom out there. I trust Super Speciosa. That's why I'm promoting them on my podcast. And if you don't believe, after buying, your money is given back guaranteed. Plus, they're offering our listeners in the Fleece Army 20% off your first order. So go to getsuperleaf.com slash 500. Once again, that's getsuperleaf.com and get 20% off your first order. We'll post the link in our show notes so it's easy for you to click and take advantage of this offer. We thank Super Speciosa for sponsoring the 500. You're going to love it.
0: I was with Ant Whistle and the Two Hookers in Vegas when he died. Dude, <laughs> I actually wasn't. I did review the show three or four days later. I reviewed their first show after Ant Whistle died, and I walked in going, "This is going to be the worst shit in history," and it was one of the best shows I ever saw.
2: Wow, wow! I had no idea that he was even dead until yesterday when I read, and then I read that he was he was with yeah, you know, he was with a stripper, and he was on coke. He was on coke. He's got two strippers, but actually one of them, a very, very famous stripper who I went on. There's a website called Who Dated Who? And you can find out everybody, all famous people of who they dated. And I put her name in. What is her name again?
0: Oh, I don't know the hooker's name.
2: Oh, no, no, no. Fuck, dude. I had it. It's in his bio. Allison Rouse. A-L-Y-C-E-N-R-O-W-S-E. And let me tell you guys, if you guys, fleece Army, if you're out there and you want to get a kick, type her name on who dated who. This chick has fucked everybody. Everybody. She I fucked feel, me. I, I feel, had no idea. I feel left out. I feel, uh,
0: yeah, I feel inadequate now. She's only, she's only
2: like 52, bro. So you got time. So, uh, so let's, let's just dive into this because there's so much to cover. Um, so the first question is: Was I the greatest boss you ever had in the history of you working?
0: It was the moment I realized you were at, on some level, my superior that I quit. I believe I no, I uh, uh, I, I I was merely a roadie, a word roadie for you on your show. I uh, and I, I yeah, I was I was barely like a best boy. Uh, I was, I was just there to help you there. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I I was uh, with the band. Yeah. (laughs) You
2: you, you did a fantastic job. Fantastic job. So the first question is why did my TV show get canceled? Is it your fault? Because I want, I need more money. That's what I'm saying.
0: (laughs) I think it was the moment we realized comedy central had some profound issues. It was like the minute that we, it was the iceberg, your show, was the iceberg that revealed that the whole ship was going down.
2: Wait, are you saying I'm Cleopatra? I'm, I. But the fact that they
0: couldn't sell you with that punum, which is a rock and roll term, punum, that they couldn't sell your show is the reason I knew Comedy Central had some trouble. Other than, God bless them, Trevor Noah, who I love and will be working on the Grammys with any, any day now. Can
2: we borrow some money, Trevor Noah? Also, it's good to know that the comedy jam, because of the comedy jam
0: and its failure, it spawned the deer hunter. I, I, I remember us being like in the back of the theater, like the night before, like saying, like I think we were both, or it was three people were trying to like text Sebastian Bach to say, can you come on tomorrow? Like we, we, there was so much like sort of, well, this is like, now I'm used to it in the age of COVID where people unbook because of, you know, illness. But now, in, in those days, it was like we were just still booking like in the morning of sometimes. And yet you look at it, you had an incredible group of artists show up and like weird weirdness that endures. So
2: weird. I, it was still surreal. But be, listen, without the failure of the comedy jam on Comedy Central, uh, because the live show is still rocking. Oh, no, we, that, did,
0: we did not fail. Yeah, the show did not fail. The network failed the show. Yes. Yes. But because the
2: network failed the show, we wouldn't have gotten this. And that brings us to the reason you're here, which I think this is probably going to be. I've for had for diem, with, for some per diem, right? I get some $50 in cash. $50. When I... You get some Cheddar Bay biscuits from Red Lobster. I'm sending them to you now. Um, Mom, can you send the Cheddar Bay biscuits? We didn't eat. Okay. Um, I'm staying with my mom by the way in bumfuck Maryland. So, I the flowers, like I have to have a wife to have flowers. You don't think this is my house? You don't think I like plate walls? <laughs> Fucking Rando. Old, these these will never die. They're going to survive. They say cockroaches will survive the apocalypse, so will those flowers. Um,
0: The Who. You you are a huge fan of The Who. So, so tell me about your story with The Who. My story of The Who is interesting because uh, th- there's a show on CNN, a more highly rated show than we ever worked on together. The '60s, '70s, '80s, those shows. I don't know if you've yeah, seen those. Like and I'm all over those. I'm one of the, uh, I'm the ugliest of the Talking Heads on that show. And uh, I-, I talked about the Who on that show, and it was in the '60s show, the British Invasion show, which I am. It's me and Tom Hanks and Questlove. That's all you see in that show. So all these people think I felt that I'm a '60s guy. But I am, despite how horrible I might look, I'm actually like a kid of the 70s. And I so I didn't discover the Who until like uh, about, I think I went over to a kid named John Gallant's house who was connected, related, or his law partner's, fa- the father was a law partner of Sergeant Shriver. So it was vaguely Kennedy-esque, Camelot moment in the 70s. I think it's mid-70s. And he had the Who by numbers. And I heard what many consider the Who's worst song, but and definitely minor, but also one of their best-known songs, "Squeeze Box," and the the breastage, the song about breast or double entendre. It may have even been a half, one and a half entendre, because it wasn't that deep, but that was enough to get me into the Who. And that is the weird fact about the record we're going to talk about. Uh, a quick one is that I have this weird as a rock scholar of some renown, a musicologist, despite the fact that I know nothing about music, Uh, the, the truth is I have a weird thing that I almost always focus on the work from the moment I came in and the records right after that. So my love of The Who, and I've written a VH1 giant tribute to them with Sean Penn opening it up, and I've Uh, You know, I've worked on a number of shows around them and been around them. I've interviewed Pete for Rolling Stone, had lunch with Roger at the Four Seasons. But the truth is, I really fell in love with the who by numbers and then who are you and then Keith Moon died. And the rest of it, I went back and rediscovered. But it's forever shaped by the fact that there was – The best greatest hits compilation ever, in my opinion, is the Meaty Beaty Big and Bouncy, which is the early who all those first hits were put on this American and I think international greatest hits record. So the I always that to me is the early who. And it was it's and and I don't know like a lot of bands like the Beatles and the Stones. There's this crazy thing where in England they didn't really put the singles on the albums, and then so in America they make there be different releases in different countries. You know that album we're talking about, a quick one, is not even called a quick one. wasn't in America for It was called like uh, Happy Jack, right? It was like um, um, I saw there. The, this was originally going to be called Jigsaw but their manager... The working title was Jigsaw. Then it was released as a quick one. But in America, they had a hit with Happy Jack, so they called it Happy Jack. So this, this record wasn't even called a quick one for a long time in America. Yeah. So the truth is, when I got to this record, I've never loved the early Who albums. Like, the first few, until you get into, like, you know, the classic sort of more of the 70s Who or Tommy, start with Tommy. The pre-Tommy stuff, I always think that the the singles collection is so perfect that that's the best way for me to listen to early Who because it's just monster after monster of the weirdness of Pete Townsend as a sort of, you know, deeply twisted but also fantastic maker of singles. This is the second Who album we're talking yep. about, second quick album. one. And it already shows the band sort of early on almost fracturing in that it's uh, – or the tensions that were – because here's the thing about The Who. You watched The Early Who and you watched The Early Beatles, like two bands of the same era. The Beatles – and I, I said this on that 60s CNN show, yeah. and I've had many people s- smarter or more famous than me say, that's exactly the truth. So I'll repeat myself on this one. Hit me. The Beatles – act like a band where they all are utterly in sync. They just are all there to help each other. And it is like there's unity. The Who is a fucking explosion. They don't even, at times you watch them and they don't seem aware that anyone else exists. They're all going off. They're all soloing. They're all the lead front person of The Who. And it's chaos, but it's the only example of chaos that works. Like Keith Moon, I don't think Keith Moon, you know, I don't know if he knows he's a drummer at times he's just he's just you know doing his own thing, which is you know contrary to like the opposite of like drummers I like like Levon Helm or you know drummers who or Ringo. It's all about just serving a song. but I think Keith is serving himself, and the interesting thing about a quick one is I think because of a publishing deal, I think the manager got them each five hundred dollars to so he goes, okay, instead of Pete writing everything. You know, Pete had just established that he maybe was a great writer. And they immediately are going, okay, you're all right. Which, it's this moment when the Who could have gone a different way. They could have been, like, more like the Beach Boys or more like the Stones or more like the Beatles even where there's more than one genius. But I think this record is where they sort of, like, Daltrey takes one shot at, like, writing the song and says, and writes a decent, you know, fine song. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, but I think he goes. You know what? Fuck this. Pete's the writer, yeah. and the and you know Keith Moon writes a couple songs and like never writes again and barely can get it together to make a solo record and do a few things. Ant Whistle is the one who I think got a taste of it because Boris the Spider becomes one of the more famous things on this record. Yeah, uh, and then and so he then becomes like the novelty addition to the Who, where he's like the comic relief. For one song on a lot of records, and everyone loves Boris the Spider except me. I think because I don't like spiders. It may be simply a <laughs> spider a anacro, anacro. I'm not an anacrophile or whatever. And I never love that song. But there's Whiskey Man on this. I do love, and I think that's true to his uh, you know end in Vegas in a hotel room with hookers and blow. Somehow I think Whiskey Man. Uh, has has a, it rings truer than me it, ultimately those things will kill you quicker than a spider it has to be a very dangerous spider to kill you more than the hookers oh for sure
2: yeah. but, i mean you know we've all you ever seen a spider hooker i would like to they are insane dude if you ever get well, instead
0: of the uh, red lobster uh gift certificate maybe you, you can me send me a spider hooker right. yeah, Ah, yes.
2: send the spider hookers <laughs>
0: Is that if I can register? I think my wife and I registered for that for the uh, for when we got married. This does have the greatest song, I think. I've, I think my favorite thing Pete Townsend ever wrote is So Sad About Us. I think it is literally the most moving, and this isn't even this version's fantastic on the record. You can go to one of those Pete Townsend, I think it's called Scoop or Another Scoop. There's two collections of his demos that he put out when he was you know riding high as a solo artist. The version of that is literally my favorite thing he's ever done. Is so sad about us. So this album is a mixed bag of showing a band in early chaos, but that song is I think the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. So when so you said you
2: got into them at a certain time, so obviously this record came out f- far before that probably.
0: So so like how old were you when you first heard this? I think I was like 1213 in Tenly in Tenafly, New Jersey, the mean streets of Tenafly, New Jersey. Uh, George Benson was had just had a hit song and moved in around the corner. That's how I got my career was I literally found out George Benson moved like 12 houses away, walked over at 12, knocked on the door, and said, "Mr. Benson, can I interview you for my school paper?" He let me in. He was, and he was sitting with a guy named Michael Masser. And this is the weirdest part of the story. It was th- they were going over a song that he had, Michael Masser had written and was working on with George for the movie called "The Greatest Love of All." The greatest, the the, the Muhammad Ali movie starring Muhammad Ali, like playing Muhammad Ali, and the song "The Greatest Love of All," which became one of the biggest songs of all time. Uh, by Whitney Houston was written for that and George Benson sang it and I being 12 or whatever I was, was let in to watch them write it and that was the first time I was around music being made and why George Benson let me in, I'll never know. I asked him and he didn't remember why he would have been in. Uh, but that was sort of the beginning of my career right there. Oh,
2: how great would it if, if you were like, you know, I have a writing credit because at one point I was like, you know, maybe you should make it a high C. there. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers. And I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like so so unlike you, i I listen, I am a who fan of the hits that I know. I love Bob O'Reilly. I love basically probably everything, you know, my generation. Um, I've seen them live. I saw them recently. I saw them at the Hollywood bowl and it was a fantastic show. Um, but you know, I've never really heard this version of them. Uh, and so I think much like you said, I think there's some really good songs on here on this record and some are kind of whatever, but Uh, I only think uh, two of the songs capture what I know and I love about the who it's not a bad album at all. It's
0: just not the who's best work. Is that Uh, close to? I think it's a fascinating glimpse of them becoming the who that they would become. It literally is the reason people think it's notable. And the reason it would end up on like a Rolling Stone list by, you know, pompous rock critics like myself is that, there's the this the quick one, the actual quick one while he's away, the, the, the first sort of pop opera, mini opera that Townsend writes is the title track of, at least in the original edition of this. And it is, you can hear Pete Townsend going from the first record, like he's just hit with like my generation and like the earliest sort of incarnation of his genius. And he's already looking at can I make this a bigger statement? And, and it's like, and it's sort of like make, and the truth is I, as a kid, it didn't, I didn't love it. And I probably, maybe because uh, I didn't necessarily understand the ambition of it. And then the thing is, if you watch the Rock and Roll Circus, which is the Rolling Stones documentary, I think Michael Lindsay Hoag directed it. It was this big project that never came out until like, you know, decades later. But it's the famous thing is that the Who, the Stones threw a party, and the Who did qu- a quick one, and it was so much better than the the Stones. The Stones never put the movie out, and it didn't. It sort of has snuck out, so you can see it. But if you watch it, that to me is the thing that makes you love this album more than anything, because the Who, being this sort of, you know, uh, it's a group of guys who didn't really necessarily like each other. Like I think they might have loved each other, but like. Roger Dalton was like, you know, not a deep thinker, but a a sort of he was getting into fights. He I think he famously was like thrown out of the band. He was a brawler. And Townsend's like, you know, a genius, but sort of socially awkward. And I I kind of think of the Who and the Beach Boys. If you think of those, the, the things that you might not like about it is because this is sort of like the moment where the Beach Boys are becoming who they are and you have a genius maybe mildly on the spectrum genius at the front, center of the band. You have Brian Wilson with the Beach Boys and you have, uh, you know, Pete Townsend with the Who, but then they're trying to figure out, how do we become a band? And in the Who's case, I think Roger Daltrey actually had a street genius. And I think he heard how much better as a singer, as a singer of the songs, he knew Pete was great, had was touched by greatness and he stepped back and became the vehicle to bring you Pete's genius. And then, uh, and I think that was one of the most important acts, but that's what, when I hear this record, it's almost like an early Beach Boys where it's like, you hear the others trying to contribute, but one guy is sort of about to take control of the band because democracy does not generally work well in rock and roll history. Oh, no, It does not. No,
2: it does not. All right, let's dive into the record. Let's just get, let's get right into it because it opens With Run, Run, Run. Uh, Pete Townsend wrote this one. Uh, This is cool. Although Roger Daltrey is the band's lead singer, due to the songwriting split, this is his only solo lead vocal on side one. And it's also about a warning to a lady to avoid him by any superstition possible or meet a very unlucky fate. Uh, to me it kinda sounds like a serial commercial. Uh JT play it. but i mean you could just insert the words oh well you love my frankenberry cocoa puffs and then we're gonna have a bowl in the morning too and go to school baba d and let's keep do i said puff puff puff
0: i don't i mean that's just what i heard
2: not bad not
0: bad but, but it's a cliche that he invented so it's like this sound it's also like it sounds a lot like one of the who first songs you know when they were going from like the uh high numbers or whatever they were evolving into the who they did a song called I'm a face baby. Is that clear? Which I don't know if you know that one. This sounds like, I believe in fact, I think I remember that Pete was may, may have given this song away to another band, but I got a feeling this is like, we made the first record shit. We have a, we, we have some momentum. So they were just sort of pulling a record together. So it might've been like, it's not a major song. It's catchy as hell. And to me, when I hear that song and I hear a bu- number of the songs of this era with The Who, it takes me back to one of my favorite, maybe my, one of my top three or four movies of all time is Rushmore. And the soundtrack, the soundtrack is magnificent and includes Quick One. Uh, uh, but that soundtrack is that exact moment when British rock is, it's like, how did the, the early Beatles, like, how do you get, this is 66. Like the, what 64 is, is like, I want to hold your hand. But that two or three years from that to like Rubber Soul and Revolver, or to you know where the Who are going, that's where that's where rock and roll grows up into something you know that can be progressive and weird and personal and powerful. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you have any superstitions? <laughs> no, I don't. You have none.
2: I'm I. I have weird ones when it comes to sports. Like if I sit on the couch and uh, a certain way and my team's winning and then if I get up and they start losing, then I'm like, it's cause I got up. <laughs> it's like, I, it's cause that cabinets, I, I closed that cabinet. Like
0: I swear to God, and you have nothing even before like a big thing. I have a wife. So I worry about her pleasing her. I don't worry. I think you're, you need, you need to have someone else to worry about, not your own, Uh, you know, emotional issues are you a big dodgers fan though you're wearing the la dodgers i am a total dodgers fan and i'll yes a total uh i was a i was a mets fan uh when i grew up and then i moved out here and i met my wife i said okay if we're gonna have kids i'm going to convert for this marriage and i'm going to convert to being a dodgers fan so that i can raise my kids having a local team but are you a baseball fan too huge i have the i have the nationals uh logo tattoo right there well, let me tell you, I lived my baseball dream, okay? Because before music, baseball was like everything to me. Uh, you know, I before rock and roll, I do remember like the 72 Mets. Like seven, I remember like the Don Clendenin Mets. Uh, but so I, I was a baseball fan, always wanted to be at the World Series. You know, that was a dream. None of it ever happened. Had kids, we took them to a lot of Dodger games. And then I had the very good fortune of – I would, I do a, I write a show called the CMAs, the country, it's like the country Grammys. Go to Nashville every year. For like 10 years, I'm sitting watching, we're working on the show, and I work with Brad Paisley, who's a big country superstar. He, I turn, somehow, I, because we're watching all these Dodger games, I convert him into a Dodgers fanatic. Best thing that ever happened to me because all baseball players, or not all, a lot of them are country music fans. A lot of these white, Sort of wholesome baseball players. love. Oh, baseball. they love
2: they love Travis Tritt, bro. Well, hey. I, I worked with Travis Tritt, but Brad Trace Atkins get Trace. It's like that's how I get pumped up before a big game. If I'm going in to save the game, I want you to bring me up to that Trace Atkins
0: song. I've worked with Trace. I've worked with Travis, but Brad is the biggest of these baseball guys now because they're younger. They love Brad Paisley, so Brad and I start being invited because they find. I'm having like pictures of us watching Dodger games. He gets invited and we are given like free reign on a box and the front row seats, whenever we want them. He does the world series. I'm with him. I'm on the field meeting Hank Aaron, meeting Sandy Koufax. And I now I'm living every baseball dream that I had, but now I'm an old man too old to, to really fully appreciate it.
2: Yeah. I've, when, when the TV show was out, William Morris gave me the the Lexus diamond club seats. You ever, you ever sat in Lexus Diamond, dude, fucking Pat Sajak was sitting like right around the corner. And he's like, Larry King, you probably saw
0: Larry King, he was there all the time, dude. The best was
2: when I went to uh game well, I went to game uh game two, well, no game one against the Dodgers, uh, in 2019, Nats Dodgers, and then I went to game five and I went by myself. I didn't get to stay in the di- in the diamond section, um, because because fucking Richard White's the head of. William Morris, he took all those tickets. So I bought a ticket, and I had the greatest time. It was the greatest baseball game I've ever seen live. Maybe the greatest sports moment I've ever been there watching live because it was when Soto and Rendon hit back-to-back home runs and then fucking Howie Kendrick hit that grand slam. You probably were watching it, and I was going nuts. And I thought I was going to die. I thought I was going to die. People were leaving immediately after that grand slam, like looking at me and to be like, we'll see you in the parking lot. And I was like, nah, man, you're going to be gone because I'm going to be here for the trophy ceremony. That's going to take at least an hour.
0: And this season was, you know, obviously no one was there, but these people put a without, I didn't pay for it, but they put a cutout of Brad and his wife and his kids and me and his manager, like in the front row. So I was watching the games, watching myself all season, feeling that I was there. And I actually have now; it's in my backyard. But I, so I feel like I enjoyed the World Series uh, season up close. I just like
2: to believe. I just like to believe they're like coming up to pitch Clayton Kershaw, and then they cue the music. Cause when, when you're a celebrity, you even you down. I
0: love that song. Love you, Brad. It, uh, Clayton came to the CMAs to hang out with us one this is like a couple of years ago when he did not win the World Series. And I got to make late at night after the show, three in the morning in Brad's private bar, got to make jokes about Dodgers who had screwed up and I got yeah. Clayton to laugh at other players and I said, This is as good as it gets for me. Like, you know, to sit with your favorite because again, I know if he's not on your team you don't like him, but If you're as a Dodger fan, I just love Clayton. Just, I mean, Hey man,
2: they put Clayton Kershaw in, in the eighth inning and we hit back to back home runs over him. Uh, So yeah, I love Clayton Kershaw. I'm a huge Clayton Kershaw fan, bro. All right. And now we're at probably the funnest song on the record and the weirdest. I don't know if that's a true statement. Definitely a song that most of the listeners are probably going to be like, I love this song or I hate it. Boris, the spider. I truth be told, Hated this at first But then I grew to love it Because of this part Uh, JT play it I I love that shit uh, it's almost like where they got the Cookie Monster voice from. Like, but the guy, fucking, heard heard Boris's spite. I wouldn't be surprised if the guy that created the voice for Cookie Monster was a fan of the Who, because I feel like it's a, he should he should pay them.
0: Ant Whistle was had a vaguely Cookie Monster vibe, and he was actually apparently a lovely guy, but he was scary, a little scary. And I was I hung out on Ringo's one of Ringo's All Star tours he was on, and he's one of the only guys I never like really got to talk to because. I just found him vaguely. Maybe it's a spider thing. I, I, it's never been one of my favorites, but I do. There's other things like uh, there's an album, the Who Did Right When Keith Moon, the last one he did before he died. Who Are You, where uh, uh, he has a song called Trick of the Light. I, I love He actually has a, a weird and unique voice, but it's just uh, this one's a little too goofy for me. Yeah. Um- so so for everybody, all the fleece, army, uh, Armony, for all the fleece,
2: Armony loves, <laughs> can't even talk for all the fleece, army and Armony listening. Uh, this song was written by bassist uh, John Entwistle, uh, and it came about after he had been out drinking with Rolling Stone bassist Bill Wyman, and they were drunkenly making up funny names for animals. Although he grew up afraid of spiders, too, it became and remained his most popular song so much so that he took to wearing a spider necklace. I know you mentioned it. Um, it's just a ridiculous song, but, like, it's so much fun. It's also it's- the
0: only time that Bill Wyman wasn't nailing a underage girl and taking notes on it during, as far as I know, in the entire 60s. So it did yeah. David, you're spilling the tea, dude. My no, God. You <laughs> no, spilled the tea long ago.
2: You could look it up. I'm not. Uh, my question my question for you is, what is your greatest drunk with a celebrity story?
0: Well, I, I will potentially alienate you by saying I have never been a drinker or a drug taker, which is one of the reasons I think I'm still around with these bands. And I, I got to Rolling Stone in 84, so I was... The, I was like Cameron Crowe, who's a friend, got there for the fun era, and I got there for the rehab era. But <laughs> I will say, uh, I will say How that – How bummed out were you though? A little bit? You're like, come on.
2: It's no. Digital. I don't think what I, think I mean, You're like dropping coke around like, oh my god, what is that, Eric Clapton? Is that cocaine? He's like, no, no, I'm, I've been off that for years. I wouldn't
0: have made it in a cooler era. Look at me. I would have. Stop saying that. You would have. You're a cool dude. No, no. But I will say, I I can say this, and I've told this to my kids. I have only gotten high professionally. I have only gotten high, and this is a a handful. I can put it on one hand. When a band said, you can't stay in this room unless you smoke. So, like on a Guns N' Roses Skid Row tour, I – I did because the bands mistakenly thought if I did that I couldn't say they were high. I just didn't mention that part. Uh, You know, but that was, uh, that's really, and I will say, uh, here's the, here's the craziest one that I, this is where I, this is the only time I ever told my kids only in this instance, do drugs was I was once at, when I moved here in 91, I was at Tom Petty's house for, I think it was Christmas party. And at one point Jeff Lynn, George Harrison, and Tom were going into a little room to get high away from the everyone. And Tom said, "You want to come get high with us?" And I went, "No, thank you, Tom Petty." And then, I, as they I walked into that little room, I said, "If they had gotten high enough with me, I could have been a Wilbury." So I blew it by just saying no. So I will say, if I could go back in time, that is the one time I wish I had gotten very, very high, and that they had gotten even higher and invited me to be like Joey Wilbury.
2: Yeah, they're like, All right, so, so this is now. Meet the rest of the band. This is Bob Dylan. <laughs> I was not like, at the party. Who okay. right. cares? But you, they're just introducing you, and you're like, I mean, I, I mean, I can play like like the piccolo or something. I yeah, mean, choose hard, choose hard.
0: It would have to be play the chauffeur. You mean to play the chauffeur? Yes, as long as no one thought it meant blowing the chauffeur because it's such a fine line <laughs> It's such a a I never even thought about that dude Dude blow the chauffeur what (laughs) (laughs) Right
2: right, Alright third song on the record I need you All right. this is cool Uh, This first attempt at writing A song by drummer Keith Moon Was originally titled I need you Like I need a hole in the head While Moon tried to sing it in the style of The Beach Boys it actually It's actually about how he thought The Beatles talked about him Behind their backs In fact Despite Keith's denial, Entwistle confirmed that the middle spoken section was Moon doing a John Lennon imitation. And I think it's actually pretty spot on. Uh, JT, play it. Laws and jingo are coming down. Lazy with the wives, you know. Excuse me, sir. Will you move your car? Check oh, the board down, sir. Check it in the They were at them. Tell you that you're thinking wrong. this you. <laughs> to me is one of the most so 1960s songs ever written uh fleece army you know what i'm about to sing incense peppermint's ripples in time da, 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 da. it's so 60s uh
0: your thoughts Hey, oh, I loved your version of Incense and Peppermints, and uh, I think it was written by a guy who used to... You know E from the Eels? He must have run into Mark. Yes, I, I've, I've, I love the band. He's a groomsman. He was one of the groomsmen at my wedding. He sang at my wedding. Love him. His manager, I believe Carter, I think, wrote Incense and Peppermints. No like a, way. <laughs> uh, An American guy, although it, yeah, it, uh, it sounds like it takes you to that summer of love or something. Uh, I... I think this, yeah. I, I think this whole album is a moment in time more than it's a cohesive album. It's it's sort of like the manager saying, "Since we got five hundred dollars, you know, no one knew who could write or produce." That's one of the amazing things about '66 is like the record companies. The, the, the lunatics were taking over the asylum. So it was like, oh, Pete Townsend, you can write, like, you know, they just found out that publishing was valuable. So it's like, shit, we better write some songs. And the manager, hey, we have 500 for each of you, so you each better write a few. It's like, nobody knew who could do what, could who could do what. And that's sort of the the, the free range weirdness of this collection. But I kind of love it in retrospect. And I, I like, uh, I think Keith Moon was this is Keith Moon probably before he was totally out of control. He's like a year and a half from being a lunatic. And I think uh, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a famous British screenwriter who's, you know, very interested in Keith. And I think Keith was a fascinating guy, but eventually he just became a fascinating mess, like a, a public spectacle. So uh, I used to work on uh, the uh, uh, CBS upfronts, you know, like where the network sells and, uh, one year they had The Who on the show because The Who have done the themes for all the CSI shows. So no one yeah, knew... You won't get food
2: again!
0: This Friday on CBS. Exactly. but that, Can you imagine how much money that has made for Pete Townsend and for The Who? So they agreed, I believe, for no money to come and play Carnegie Hall for a, what is in essence a great advertising event. And You know, that's the Who Sell Out 2, not the sequel to the later Who concept album, the Who Sell Out. But so we have the Who, and I'm one of five people in New York who knows it. And the drummer for the Who and the guy who I believe gave them a second life, because after Keith Moon died, they put in, you know, Kenny Jones from, you would think from the faces, small faces, that would work. It didn't work. Then they put in Simon Phillips, a fantastic, brilliant drummer from Jeff Beck. You think it would work. It didn't work because they were too good and too or too something. And Keith Moon was one of a kind. But the genius of Townsend and Daltrey is they eventually get in Zach Starkey, who is Ringo's son, but who is also his he was taught drums not completely by his dad, but also by his godfather, Keith Moon. So this kid was sort of learned. The rudiments of his drumming were based on the two greatest drummers in British rock history, Ringo and Keith Moon, and he can do both. So the weirdest moment was we have Zach Starkey standing side of stage at Carnegie Hall. I'm standing by him. But that year, by weird coincidence, we began the show with a Beatles tribute act, one of the big, expensive, good Beatles tribute acts, doing a song about, that used Beatles lyrics to talk about television and advertising. And so I'm sitting with Zach Starkey and the who watching a Beatles tribute and, and the guy do Ringo. And I thought, this is the weird, you know, and I'm watching him just watch this guy play his dad. And it was as one of the, you know how many surreal moments there are working on that was a weird one. So you've all, so speaking of the Beatles, you wrote about the Beatles, uh,
2: in the 2014 TV special, The Night That Changed America, a Grammy salute to the Beatles. And I know uh, this is a little uh, heretical uh, because we all love them. But what's the worst thing about the
0: Beatles? Oh, boy. Uh, the worst thing about the Beatles, and that unfortunately it is related to the best thing about the Beatles, is it was only a, such a short run that it is – it, it's both the reason that we still worship it. It's like live, you know, live, uh, live. Uh, it's like like James Dean or something. They're frozen in time, and what they've done is almost perfect. There's a couple tracks. Like I don't really need to hear a couple tracks. That's true, but because they were only really in America from '64 to '69, that's a short period. The Who have had to grapple with not dying. Other than uh, Pete and Roger, have had to grapple with becoming. You know all these old British rock stars—they're the coolest guys on earth—and then they become, you know, very attractive older women. You know, we looked at them, and they—they—they they, they become, uh, you know, they—they don't—they don't inspire that level of cool. Like I took my son to see The Who, you know, one of the last times round, and it's like I'm seeing them from my 14-year-old self, but they're not. Like it's interesting to me, and you would understand this more than I would. You're younger and a rocker, but like my kids, like I'm shocked that my kids grew up thinking Black Sabbath were almost bigger than the Who you know, or the Beatles. Because I think it's just like Rock, uh, School of Rock or whatever, like they, that, there was a moment where they were cool in school for my kids, which I don't know that the Beatles have been, although they're enduringly cool to me. I just worked on a book with Ringo that came out uh, this few weeks ago called Ringo Rocks. And so I'm not going to say any shit about the Beatles, but I, am, I consider myself the 505th Beatle. Uh, but I did, we did a grant. That was the Grammy special we did, uh, after the Grammys, like two, the, it's actually two days later or the next day, two days later, uh, Grammy tributes. Uh, and that was amazing because it sort of built to Ringo and Paul doing set together. And that was pretty, you know, you don't get that every day.
2: No, you don't. Um, I, I you know, I think the, I think the reason that you said that the Beatles the the what's 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 bad about the Beatles is also what's great is makes complete sense. It's just I still people forget that the Beatles were only together for such a short time and they changed and they manifested and they and they just were. It was like you look at pictures of them, you are like those pictures were taken like six months apart. How does John Lennon have that long a hair already? It's just it's like it's like everything about him just felt so rushed and and but then also the same such perfect amount of time like if they would have gone longer who knows what they would have put out maybe
0: it wouldn't have been as good you have no idea there's a great book um that is almost impossible to find anymore called paperback writer i think a guy named mark shipper wrote it and it was it came out when i was again around the time we're talking about in the 70s late 70s it was peter frampton era And uh, this book came out and it imagined if the Beatles reunited in like 77 or whatever it was. And it ended up with the Beatles putting out a terrible record and opening for Frampton. And it was sort of like, that's why the Beatles are the Beatles because they didn't ever do that stuff, you know? And, uh, and it's funny, like it's changed. Like they, Paul and Ringo now seem to be very comfortable doing stuff with one another. But even like I met Ringo 30 years ago, and I moved here 91. And at one point when we were getting friendly, he called me, I remember, and he asked me to lunch, which was like unbelievable. You know, the fact that he, was, you know, you know, want to come to lunch. But he said when he meet called.
2: Me, meet me at Blaze Pizza
0: at 3 p.m. And you're like, at Blaze? All right. It was meet me at Onken And But uh, he did say, uh, I remember at that point, he goes, uh, I got call waiting. You know how you hear the click or whatever? And I said, he goes, are you going to take that? I go, no, I never take call waiting on a beetle as a joke. And he (laughs) he went, and he's the nicest guy in the world, but he went, ex beetle, like mad at me. And I'm like, and I said, fuck you. You're not an ex beetle. I said, it's like being president or kid. You're, You're president for life. You're still, you know, you may be former president, but, you know, you're still a president. Yeah, yeah. Dude, Ringo, you're a beetle, bro. Come on, dude. Well, now I think they've changed. I think they've now more comfortable. Okay, we got to listen to this record. All right. (laughs) Whiskey Man.
2: I love Uh, love this one, too. It's about an alcohol-induced hallucinations and delusions, and forcible treatment was the second written and sung by bassist John Entwistle. Uh, Dude, John wrote a banger. Kick it, JT. They said
0: there's only
1: I feel
2: to that own. we both might agree, this is the best Life moment on the entire record. Just that, like, that, like... It's actually just,
0: the best vocal, it. and this will sound so great, too. Which he was not known for that at all. I think he finally found a topic that he would dedicate his life to: alcoholism and perhaps rehab. It's I think it's it's ultimately like one of the first rehab songs if you listen to it, and it's uh it's it's great and it's sort of it's funny because I. Had, uh, i i i rediscovered it now I, I think it's now one of my favorites yeah um so
2: years later when people requested this he would reply i don't drink whiskey anymore i'm a brandy man now uh and whistle plays the french horn on this uh his first instrument before switching to bass that's so crazy like who the fuck is like asking their parents to play the french horn
0: Mom, i want to play the french flugel horn you would, if you go listen to, later, there's Quadrophenia and then there's the soundtrack of Quadrophenia where they re-recorded it. And Entwistle did this amazing work with the arrangements with that sort of stuff because he had that background. Yeah, he's, it's like it's all these British bands. It's kind of like Entwistle there is a little like John Paul Jones with Led Zeppelin where you have like a guy who has secret talents that he can bring to the party. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you this. I'm
2: actually excited about this question. Um, so I know you, you know so much about rock stars in the past and their substances and you've been backstage and you've been around some of the biggest rock stars ever. What's the craziest stuff you've ever seen? Drug
0: wise, the craziest, Whatever, whichever, whatever you think was the craziest. Can we come back to that? I'm going to think while we're talking by the end of this record, I'll think of what is the craziest I've seen. I'm, I'm going to hold you to it. I'm going to hold you. I really would love to hear it. Yes, I will. Uh, I mean I saw again I ran into a lot of the bands in in the rehab years so it's it's a different kind of craziness than the other craziness I will say Guns N Roses was the most rock and roll band I was ever around I once I I was the music editor of Rolling Stone brand new couple years out of college somehow went from Esquire magazine to Rolling Stone and became the music editor and one of the first bands I got behind was Guns N' Roses. I thought when Appetite came out, uh, I am thanked, I'm proud to say, uh, on Use Your Illusion. Uh, I'm I wish Axel had written a song about what an asshole I was, because I'd be more famous than I am because I didn't get I didn't get that. I got You weren't you weren't in Get Get in the Ring? He didn't he didn't shout you out? I was Thanks very much for being a nice mensch or whatever. Axel fuck wrote. you,
2: Tina from Spin magazine. I want to give my homie a big shout out. Thank you, love you, brother from Rolling Stone.
0: But fuck you from fucking Spin. True story. <laughs> at the peak of appetite, it's exploding. There's a Rolling. So for oh, sorry. The first part is I go to see them at I think it's a, a Brendan Burn. No, it was the Giant Stadium. You know. Uh, and Aerosmith, they're opening for Aerosmith. This is as they're exploding. And I go backstage to meet the guys. And at that point, and I think this is partly shaped probably Guns N' Roses history after that, literally Axel was the only one capable of speech when I went backstage. Like the rest of them were smacked and out of their heads. This is like, they're and the Aerosmith were being guarded 24 hours so they wouldn't be exposed to these ruffians. But Axel was hyperverbal and kind of brilliant and weirdly a guy like you or me who you could just talk music with all day. He would have been great on this show. We talked about our shared love of Nazareth, who a huge influence. If you listen to how Axel sounds like Dan from Nazareth to a significant degree, the raspberries who I want a power pop band that I didn't grow up in time for the Beatles and the hood, but I was watching like Don Kirshner and that sort of stuff and fell in love with the raspberries. And the Pet Shop Boys, who were big at that exact moment. And Axel and I were talking Pet Shop. You know, dude, my best joke, my best joke, it's so sad to say.
2: One of the jokes I say is, like, don't you wish Axel Rose was Jewish? Just hearing, like, Axel at the Passover Seder, like, Baruch Adonai. <laughs> like, Jesus, who invited him to, to Seder? Moses came down Mount Sinai. <laughs> I knew you'd get that. Uh thank you, thank you. why can't you be in every audience I ever perform in? I will tell
0: you, Bowie came out to me as a Jew. He told me and swore to me that he'd just found out that his mother was actually uh mostly Jewish, making him a Jew. Now I don't know if this was just a need to bond with me, but Bowie <laughs> told me he was Jewish, which I always wanted to be Jewish. <laughs> exactly. True. Which would uh yes. Uh young Jewish American, that sounds <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, In any case, Axel, right after that, there was a huge Rolling Stone advertising party, not for like writers, but for like advertisers. And apparently Axel, being the impetuous lad that he was, like saw the Ritz or whatever, It said Rolling Stone party. And in the middle of where Axel is taking over the world, he walks into this party and goes, is David Wilde here making me for that one day the coolest guy in Rolling Stone history? Because he was the coolest guy in the world at that time. Exact, exact moment but then like all relationships there were tensions you know sure. to talk axel but it, no. we'll talk another day about axel
2: no i love that i love i love it dude i could sit here and talk to you about guns and roses like it's it's it changed my life i've said this a million times on the podcast i'm sorry people i love that band
1: hey this is scott from Fly on the call each week i speak to a different musician whether they're in an established band like silverstein or the Wonder Years, or band on the rise like Spanish Love Songs, Origami Angel, or Meet Me at the Altar. We discuss music and lyrics, the successes and challenges of being in a band, and more, as we get to the core of each artist. The show features musicians of diverse genres and backgrounds, so there's always a chance I'll be talking to your new favorite band. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris, and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and, in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.
2: Can't wait. We're going to get to that record in like seven years, so just just know that I'll be ready. all right, Heat Wave. I want to skip over Heat Wave. It's a good cover uh, of the song written by Brian Holland, Lamont Dozier, and Edward Holland Jr. Um, from what I know about it, I, I think Morty told me this, and so tell me if I'm right or wrong, that uh, Roger wanted to do a whole album of covers. Is that
0: true? Yeah, I believe that's true. And also they did another like Holland, Dozier, Holland cover. I did a Motown Grammy tribute uh, recently and got to have the selfie with Holland, Dozier, Holland, and Wild. It was a huge, you can't, and, and I actually think they did so great. Like the British guys just, they didn't, they didn't try to pretend to be them, but they, I, I love, I like Heatwave. We don't need to hear it.
2: Um, I, you know, I'm going to move this question uh, to something else because I really like it, but I feel like we got to move on to Cobwebs and Strange. Ah, oh, that's got to be about fucking, that's, that's the spider prostitute. Remember this sp- spider hooker? We talked about that a few songs oh, back. You think I've uh, forgotten? i Cobwebs uh, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna... and strange. I, I is anybody, Hopefully, there's somebody in the fleece army that's listening and laughing their ass off.
0: I want uh, me some strange. I want me some strange. Strange, dude. Yeah. All right.
2: I'm, so, um, I'm gonna play this part. Uh, you guess who wrote it. Thing wrote. You mean the song? The
0: key, it's Keith Moon.
2: Keith Moon was the Nope, nope. It was Brian Holland, Lamont Dozier, and Edward Holland Jr. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> well, I thought that would get a laugh. God damn! I've been planning that joke all day. And uh, you're right. Okay, first, everybody. Now we
0: know why the comedy jam got canceled. That comedy cycle <laughs> That joke. Yeah, dude. they they went they they minority reported it and they saw it. They're like, all right, he's
2: gonna make a bad joke in 2021. So yeah, everybody, this marching band style song uh, is Keith Moon's second song. It was originally called "Showbiz Sonata." Aunt whistle Whistleclaim Moon took the melody from the UK series "The Man from Interpol." I, I found this to be really cool. This, you might dig this too. Each band member played a wind instrument, Townsend on the penny whistle and whistle on the trumpet, Daltry on the trombone and moon on the tuba. And I just started like thinking for a second, David, I was like, I was like, God, like, I just like hope they were all having like a good time. And like the producer had to be like, Roger, can you stop fucking around on that piccolo and get serious? We need to record. And he's like, <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think I think that's accurate though. I think that this was a band you look at the Rock and Roll Circus where they sort of this they're sort of jammed together this might have been the moment where they were like actually enjoying each other. I think that would Disappear. I agree. How could you not have fun
2: playing that? And you can almost hear. I think that's what I like so much about like Keith Moon and the kind of the mythos about him is just like it's like this. It's like you just. It sounds like he's having fun playing. Like it really genuinely sounds like when he beats on those drums. He's that. He's Animal, the character he inspired from the Muppets. Do you know what I mean?
0: Well, I also think of him. What's weird is maybe this is all the same time when I'm a kid. But I think of him as like Arthur from Dud he reminds me of Dudley Moore in Arthur, which was a big comedy at that exact moment. Like he was this British irresponsible man child. Like and the interesting thing about this record, uh, is that Quick Quick One is like the most focused he ever got. He was actually like putting together songs. He made a solo record. There's one called like Two Sides of the Moon. He couldn't have spent 10 seconds. It's like it was made around him by dealers and session guys. Like he wasn't putting any work into his own solo records within three or four or five years of this. But here he's doing some great stuff.
2: So I want to talk about uh, people that play every instrument and uh, you got to spend a lot of time uh, with Prince. So what – are your favorite
0: Prince memories? Uh, The first memory is I met him in Paris covering the Love Sexy tour. And I was brought over to meet him. He played a concert. He then had a party. It's now two in the morning and it's on like a little private park island in a park in the middle of Paris. And Prince who is so short, I tower over him, summons me, I'm summoned over with Kurt Loder from MTV. You know Kurt? Oh, I remember Kurt. Kurt stepped on his foot, which made the already shy Prince even shyer, but he still goes, I'm playing tonight. And it was like, it's two in the morning. He goes, I'm playing tonight if you want to come. So he plays on the Champs elysees a show that now, because the internet, I was able to look at the actual playlist, and so that was the moment I met him. We said about nine words, but he also then asked me to help him pick songs for, to be on his first Greatest Hits record, which was cool because I got thanked by Prince, which after being thanked, I think within a couple of years I was thanked by Axel, Prince, and New Kids on the Block, none of which was able to get me laid. But it was all notable for me. Uh, but then Prince, uh, over the years, I got to do some crazy things, including trying to write jokes for Prince like pitching, imagine pitching Prince a joke. And I, it was, uh, you know, it was amazing. And the most amazing, but the most amazing day was I started doing the Grammys and Ken Orellick, the executive producer and I are on the phone with him talking about what he's going to do to open the Grammys with Beyonce. It became like a famous great opening one a real moment for him, a sort of comeback moment and a moment for Beyonce too. But the way it, got organized was he goes just come over here let's t- go and so we're, we go over to the rehearsal stage and first we have a little meeting and uh after the meeting he goes you want me to try this out for you and we went yeah he goes okay and then he gives us he has has a beautiful woman assistant type put two chairs in front of the band in a rehearsal space and he does a full concert for Ken and I, it's a two, a concert for two by Prince. It was the most amazing thing. And at the, at the end of it, he goes up to me, he goes, I forget, you used to be a journalist. You got to sign a non-disclosure form. And he hands me like a paper to say, I can't say what I've just seen. And I said, you have to ask me to sign that before you do it. No. Which is the reason I can tell you this story now, but it was, you know, working with him was amazing. And I, I just, I think he was a total genius. I That was that was during my college years was when he exploded. And so he's like, as opposed to like the Who had already had their moment and I sort of jumped on or the Beatles saying they were already broken up. With Prince, I experienced that whole ride. And then when we did the tribute to him that was in J- last year uh, on CBS, uh, it was so great because I got to work with Sheila E. who was in that band in Paris, the Love Sexy band, and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, We were like with the brain trust with Ken Ehrlich working on how do we do this? And I think we did him proud. That was like Jimmy Jam and I talk about it all the time. It's like we know that Prince generally would hate anything anyone did. He was very tough. He wasn't like easygoing about his music, but I think we did him pretty proud.
2: I say this to everybody, and if you're listening and you haven't watched uh, the George Harrison tribute at, I think it's a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when they did "While wow My Guitar Gently Weeps," and that's the moment, dude. It's watching him shred that guitar solo. You forget that that he's up there with any other rock stars. You're only looking at him, and it just it made me such a huge Prince fan. Uh, so I'm just I can't recommend it enough. Watch that if you haven't seen it.
0: There are two moments my life. Guitar of my life. There's two moments that I stand out. I was in high school hearing, or middle school, high school hearing "Eruption" for the first time, and then there was that Prince solo. Which uh, you know, I knew Petty quite well. I know Jeff Lynne pretty well. It's one of the most astonishing things. I think Winwood is even on the stage. Danny Harrison. There's no. They're laughing because it's like he just is in another world, and he. It's and he was always like a a sort of. Funny, funnier than people knew, and always hyper competitive. And he just knows I own it. This is my. And then just to he
2: throws the guitar up in the air and walks off stage. I don't even know who the
0: fuck caught it, but I just I think it's still floating. Yes, exactly. He's up there with that guitar right now. Yeah. yeah. Um. All
2: right. Don't look away. Uh. This is a Townsend uh, penned uh, sort of like a country folk song, and it's got a fun uh, Chet Atkins inspired guitar solo. Uh. JT, play that shit.
0: Again, it's like, it's almost, I can't figure out, and I I once interviewed Townsend, who was the best, easiest, best interview you could ever have. In Rolling Stone, I did him, without telling him, I interviewed him and said, I only asked questions that were his song titles. So I said, like, who are you? You know, I I only literally used his own titles to ask him questions, and he went right with it and was brilliant and funny. But I think, I never asked him about this record, and if I did, I think it was almost like, he was just sort of like, when the manager said, well, let everyone write, he was like, okay, yeah, you guys try it. And so it's, it's not a major song, but it's totally charming. And he, you know, I think the early, again, I would say, don't listen to only this record if you don't know the Who, but I would say, first listen to Meaty, Beaty, Beaty, Big and Bouncy, this great compilation of the, all the earliest hits. And then this sort of takes you, it's the bridge to Who Sell Out and Tommy, which is, all that stuff that's coming.
2: Yeah. Um, okay. I want to ask you uh, about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So you uh, you vote on this, right? You're one of the vote- voters. I, I, yes, I vote. All right. So this year's inductees will be voted on at the end of the month and probably announced a, a month or two later. Um, so I would hope as a contributing editor at Rolling Stone Magazine, you could do something about some of the obvious uh omissions, uh like the monkeys, the New York dolls, like the go-go's, Ozzy Osbourne?
0: Well, you don't you know, first of all, I'm a recovering uh Rolling Stone guy. I'm really a TV writer and producer now, but I and I don't nominate, I vote. So once they tell me who I don't and you can't, you know, I'm not writing in but I will tell you, there is no one. You go to my Twitter feed at Wild About Music. There is no one who writes about why the monkeys deserve to be in the Hall of Fame more than me. I'm obsessed with that. It pissed. Like, again, I didn't, I, you know, I, I, it just drives me insane, that particular one. But there's a million. But New York Dolls, New York Dolls for sure.
2: So, I, so without saying anything negative about, about whoever actually gets in, if you had your way – who would be in the class of 2021? Who would you, right here
0: on the 500? Well, monkeys. Uh, I think Rundgren and the New York Dolls, because Rundgren's not in, and the and he produced uh, among other, you know, New York Dolls. So uh, I also think then we need to address the women who are not in, because it's pretty embarrassing and if not very 2021 of us that like. And, and, uh, so I'd have to. I'll, I'll probably make a long. I could give you a long list, but like, I think like Pat Benatar wasn't in, and she should be in. It's just you know, it's 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 messed up because, and again, it's sort of like. If if you're, old, I don't know if you're even quite an old. List. She was a big deal. She was a big. I, I remember. I I've, it's, I never was hugely into her, but
2: I remember her being around. I remember the name. I remember seeing, and especially in the movies, like I, like you when you watch Fast Times at Ridgemont High, it's like oh, she's got a Pat Benatar thing, and you're like, and then, so does she. So you, I, I get it. I get the the gravity of of the music and how. And then
0: uh, because uh, LL Cool J, who is a friend, he has to be in. He was the first hip hop superstar. He was, you know, it, very important to that whole story. And he I said the sugar, sugar, sugar on the first date. All right. What were you we saying? <laughs> uh, I, so I want LL in there with Public Enemy. Those were the two guys I was in, you know, the New York area when that stuff happened. And I think Public Enemy and LL, Public Enemy are in, LL needs to be in. Yeah. With... Oh, for sure. For sure, dude. Um, Alright, let's move on. See my
2: way. Uh, this is interesting. Uh, despite the two songs per member deal, this is Roger's only contribution to the record and his only solo written song on any of their albums. Uh, this is a great little ditty though. JT, play it. everybody hear Ed Whistle on
0: that French horn again? Did everybody hear it? Just want to make sure everybody did, because I heard it. Uh, yeah, I think it's fascinating. I don't know Roger well, but I did, like I remember he had a solo record called, when I moved out here in 91, so right after, somewhere in the early 90s, he had a solo record called Rocks in Your Head, and I had lunch with him. He had unbelievably little ambition as a writer, and yet I think... What's funny is that I think you said he's never written on a solo on a, a Who album ever, but I think the last album started with him writing songs for a Who record and and, and Roger, I think they, they had, they, they're two very different guys and butted heads forever. I think they now have more of a connection, even if it's still a difficult one. But Roger sort of said, having heard, uh, I'm sorry, Pete, having heard Roger's, recent solo album said you should write for the who so i think now on their last most recent record peter uh pete is encouraging and roger is writing more i like the song i just think roger has like a sort of a no bullshit sort of street wisdom and he knew that pete was the genius yeah no you can tell i mean you know when you're
2: you know, when I when I first met my friend Angelo Bowers, who's the reason I did the jam and the reason I did this, it's like you watched him on stage and you were like, "Oh, this guy is—he's got everything. He's just—he's a total package. He's got a voice. He's got a—he's got a stage presence. He's funny. His jokes are—you just—you knew it. So yeah, I completely could imagine being
0: around a young Pete Townsend and being like, "Yo, dude, you fucking rip, bro." But to give Roger his credit, I think. What's interesting is that Pete also being a genius and being, I think, maybe somewhere on the spectrum as a genius, can disappear up his own asshole lyrically. And I think writing for Roger, having this sort of different kind of guy, more of a sort of, uh, you know, uh, more of an average Joe kind of upfront man – Belting it out has sort of saved Pete from some of his self-indulgence, where some of his solo records have eventually gotten bloated. I think by writing for Roger, he has to be a little bit more straight, plain-spoken, and and I think they've helped each other by being the mouthpiece and the uh, you know the genius behind the scenes, and and like most bands. The harmony, like the weird harmonies you hear in their 60s work, like I often find even up like Who's Next, which is maybe the most obvious of the masterpieces. The best stuff is often when you when Rogers leads singing, but then Pete comes in with a line with that readier voice. They're almost like it's like brothers in a band. You have that second voice that's kind of similar, but. Yeah. I think we're readier in this case. So it's funny that you
2: brought up harmonies because I feel like the next song is just drenched in it. Uh so sad about us. Uh Pete Townsend wrote this. Uh, this is almost like a blueprint uh for Big Star or Power Pop, and which is funny because uh Pete actually coined the phrase power pop the following year. So Fleece Army, we all we've done all three records from Big Star. Listen to this. Tell me I'm wrong, Peter play it. Never up. So, I mean in my opinion, this is easily the most accessible song on the record, the most pop. Uh, it's 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 also, and Morty wrote this, and I, I kind of agree, this is the closest thing to sounding like the classic Who sound we've come to recognize. What are your thoughts on that? I have
0: said it before We you asked me to do this, this is my favorite song Pete Townsend ever wrote. It is, uh, and there is this alternate version on the Scoop uh, collection of demos, which it's, I also absolutely love that because that's Pete in isolation. You feed, It's almost like 66 emo, it's, you know, very sensitive. But the great thing about The Who is you take this sort of introspective, hurt, fucked up Pete Townsend, but if you put Keith's drums behind it and you have Roger, you know, as part of it and Entwistle doing playing, it gives it an epic nature. So it's like, it's this, it's hurt, but it's still majestic. Like, so this has the majesty that we love in The Who, but it is a deeply felt song. It's like it's it's yeah, I just couldn't love it more. It's and by the way, it's been covered by everyone from like Sean Cassidy has a version I love. You know, on a, a Todd Rundgren produced album called a Wasp. Check that out sometime. I will, I will. Yeah, I, I think this song is perfect. I really do.
2: I I want to ask you about band breakups. What band's breakup makes you the saddest?
0: Well, ultimately, the Beatles is the saddest because it's the dream that died. And it's like, uh, I was of the age where they'd already broken up by the time I cared. And then it's like, what? And then, but I will say that led to some interesting moments because I was raised on wings more than I was raised on Beatles. And I, then I go in uh, the nineties on the road with McCartney and I'm in Argentina in the back of a tour bus. And I say something to him that he goes. You're the first person to ever say that because this was the era he started playing the Beatles a lot around then. And I said, "God, I'd like to hear more Band on the Run, less Beatles." He went, "What?" I said, "I, I said I just because my that's my exact generation. Band on the Run was my Sergeant Pepper. I loved it. I still love it." And he was sort of that was he had sort of avoided Beatles for the first wave of Wings, but now in those sort of solo years where he and Linda had you know were establishing themselves in the 90s they started doing tons of beatles but i i'm just of a generation that loved the solo work too and uh now,
2: you know you're that's uh, reggie watts said the same thing when he came on the podcast he was like I, like I'm, I'm not really a beatles fan he goes i love wings i love wings and we did we did band on the run
0: that stuff is so majestic and by the way it's so interesting you bring that up because then you know we're going to do a quick one and band on the run is just one of the Uh, It really, you could argue, before the Beatles did, like, the Abbey Road stringing a bunch of little fragments together and making this little epic piece, uh, you know, that's what famously they did on Abbey Road, but that's a couple years later. The Who quick one is really one of the first examples of, along with Day in the Life, where Paul uh, and John take two, like, pieces and then merge it into this one epically brilliant song but that's what quick one is you know in retrospect it's one of the first times anyone took fragments and made this sort of try to tell a story and this was it's interesting because uh, in these early days it's pretty coherent it's like you know guy goes away woman cheats guy comes home he forgives a woman they move on it's a rather uh, sensitive uh, uh, portrayal I, by the way I've always thought, one of the amazing things I learned as a rock critic, which it was Elvis Costello, as I mentioned, was my hero. When I interviewed him years ago, I remember going, "God, you wrote these all these songs about women who cheat and are who are fucking around." He goes, "No, those were all about me. I just made it the woman doing it." But all those songs, all those songs where I'm angry at women, I'm just it's talking to myself. It's like you, you I even call myself a slut. He called them, you know. It was like a series of witty put downs. But that's what I think is. Pete, I think there are a band of guys in 66 about to embark on all the swinging birds of London and, you know, start becoming as the groupie scene is just in free love and summer of love is all coming. They're probably all cheating on the road. And so they, of course, Pete writes a song that's like an epic of, I forgive the women for cheating. And I, and I, I suspect it's the same thing. It's like him sensitively wanting to sort of reverse the roles. It's like coming home and going, Oh, We're wanting to be forgiven. So instead, he forgives. I love it I
2: love it all right you mentioned it earlier might as well get into the closing track on the record a quick one while he's away so this is really cool so this record was like we said earlier was originally called Jigsaw and had several other songs on it when their manager and producer Kit Lambert told them it had to be better after replacing some songs there was a 10 minute gap that needed to be filled so Lambert suggested that Townsend write something linear and long to fill it in when Pete said that songs are too minutes and 50 seconds long lambert told him i love this to write 10 minutes of two minutes and 50 second songs so these six piece together snippets tell the story of a woman's infidelity uh while her man's away her confession upon his return and the couple's reconciliation and that inspired townsend's Full albums of rock operas like 69's Tommy and 73's Quadrophenia. Uh, I don't know if you agree with me, David, but my favorite part uh, is near the end where the band couldn't afford to hire a string section. So they just sang cello, cello, cello rather than the arrangement. Uh, it's at seven minutes. Peter, play it. That is fucking phenomenal. That is so gene. That you have to be on the spectrum to come up with that. So, Pete. You fucking
0: did it again. Uh, Your thoughts. I mean, I mean, you love it, right? Oh no. And I've liked, I like it more now than I did even then. Like I think again, I really recommend going to go on YouTube and look at the rock and roll circus uh, version of them doing it. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And it's it's like, and it's the most cohesive that band has ever seen, uh, uh, seen together. But yeah, no, it's a brilliant example of Pete's ambition, it's, it's really the moment, the exact year where rock and roll is becoming art. It's that it's it's pretty much that moment. So, you, you know so much about about music,
2: but you've also written uh, books about TV shows, uh, Seinfeld and Friends. How did those come about? And, and and you being an expert on Friends and Seinfeld,
0: I only became an expert when I cashed the check for a book deal. Uh, but no what and i don't think i'm an expert on anything that's why like when i joke like people have said i'm a musicologist you probably are a musicologist i don't know i don't know the least thing about music i, I but I'm a, i love the people who make music and i love the history of it and with tv it was quite accidental i moved out here in 91 for rolling stone to be the west coast bureau chief and because i was literally proximity uh, to the tv industry I started, like, I did a cover story on Friends because my wife, who just walked in, like liked Friends. So I watched it and I, and I said, you know, this show is taking off. We should maybe do a story. And then by the time the story ran, the show had exploded and it was a cover story. And I got the reason I wrote the book is literally that uh, the cast of Friends liked that cover story. And when Warner Brothers said, we're doing a book, they said, we'll only do it with that guy. So that is why I wrote the book. And then years later, when the show was ending... Uh, I wrote the final one. And those were two bestsellers. So that made me a TV book writer. But I, yeah, I have to say, I may be like I have, even though I've now ended up going into TV and write for TV, I have a whole different attitude about TV than music. Music, I worship the people who do it. And I, it really is like the core uh, of my sort of Uh, understanding of art, whereas TV, I sort of am more of a wise-ass about. And so I think maybe I'm a better writer about TV because I don't love it as much as I love music. Sure. When do we expect the book on Night Court? (laughs) Exactly. I did do Melrose Place. uh, Night Court. Yeah,
2: Night Court book. I'm buying. I'm I'm ordering pre-order. Pre-ordering on Amazon, on the Zan.
0: I, I am, yeah I'm disappointed. No one has called me to do the Tiger King uh, book. yet. Oh, the Night definitive. The, 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 come on,
2: Bull, Marshall <laughs> Warfield. I'm still on. I'm still on Nightcore. I'm gonna be on, I'm gonna watch Nightcore as soon as this is over. I, I will say
0: guy. whatever those books. Being being a fan of charts and watching reading charts, seeing yourself on like a New York Times bestseller list, it was a pure thrill. Oh, I can imagine. I might have preferred if it was for the Sun also Rises rather than the murrow's Place companion but still it was pretty cool that's so funny
2: you can't, you can't just enjoy it you can't just enjoy like no, no it's great this
0: is great you're like no no I, I did I, I didn't <laughs> the truth is my wife can tell you I completely enjoyed it I was going every I was going to every bookstore in LA like moving my book closer. Good. Yeah, okay. I love it. All right. You want to do some facts and we'll get out of here.
2: Sure. All right. All right. The front cover by renowned artist Alan Aldridge typifies the pop art and mod movements with stylized illustrations of the band with exaggerated titles of their written songs from each individual member. I had no idea. That's what the album title was. I thought it was like some psychedelic thing
0: because it is kind of yeah, like no, it it's definitely a 66 uh, image and that guy alan Aldridge did a famous book of sort of illustrating the beatles that if you track down it was fantastic later uh in the 70s but yeah what's funny is that that illustrated that album and then america i think they just took the same thing and called it happy jack you know i think yeah. they just yeah yeah the back cover of the u.s version had happy jack on it Um, so I want to ask you this
2: because you would know what's the greatest exaggeration rumor or outright lie in rock and roll.
0: Well, I, I don't know, but I will tell you that I often would ask, Every like road manager, when I was on the road with bands, I'd say, what's the weirdest fact that you know that I don't know that I need to know? I would ask like, what's the weird, and, and I just never, I think it might have been Guns and Roses manager, road manager, but it was one of those sort of rock bands. He goes, well, it might be that James Brown fucked one of the Bay City Rollers. And I thought, well, that would be a good one. <laughs> hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from No Effects and Ian MacKay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media.
2: All right. So you already said the one fact earlier uh, about the Rolling Stone uh, Rock and Roll Circus. Uh, so I don't need to say it again, but I want to give you my question on it because it's a really good one. Uh, what was the greatest concert you've ever seen? And also, what was the worst concert by a great band? The
0: The private concert by Prince and the private... The, that was literally a concert for two. That might be the most spoiling, great concert I've ever looked But... But also the one in Paris where I was in a little club, that was pretty good. Because Prince, I think, is the best performer I've ever seen. Just, you know, forgetting everything else and all the other talents, just as a charismatic stage performer. One of the worst I remember was, I think, in an early date with my wife. I was a Van Halen fan, like I hope you are. Uh, and I did go to see David Lee Roth once at the House of Blues. And I walked in. And he was so, and again, because I thought with Van Halen, he was so good, but this was during a low point in the solo years and he sounded so bad. I literally walked in, took my wife's hand and we walked right out. So I think it was like, I didn't want to hear him sound that bad.
2: Wow. Yeah. I love Dave, man. I just saw a picture. I'm not trying to shit on him at all because I would fucking love to have him on, but it's just like, you know, Dude, he had that one good solo record where he did all the we you know, like crazy from the,
0: crazy from the heat album. Yeah, yeah.
2: Oh my god! But dude, and here's the thing: is that I'm I'm a newer. I've, I like I like I I love the hits of Van Halen. Now I'm starting to really dig in to like their albums because of this podcast, and and they're incredible. It's I mean I've seen you know it's funny. I always remember like like you go to a show and you see like like I remember I went to go see uh, my morning jacket and the band that opened for them was this band called Lake Trout. Did you ever hear about them? Yeah, From yes. Baltimore, you heard of Lake Trout? All right, so I yeah. don't think they're around anymore. I know some of the band went off to do, to work with Uncle, and, and they had another uh, drum and bass, inst- live instrumentation thing called Big in Japan. And the whole crowd was there to see Lake Trout. So the 930 Club in D.C. And yeah. Lake Trout crushed it, dude. Crushed it so hard. And I I, I don't know why I thought of this concert, but as soon as Lake Trout got off, cause my morning jacket hadn't blown up yet. Half I'd say like more than half of the crowd left. And then my morning jacket came out and put on one of the greatest performances I've ever seen in my life. Almost being like, fuck you to those people that left. Cause they knew it. I mean, yeah. you could tell half the audience was gone and it was just And from that moment on, I because I actually went to go see, to my morning jacket because I liked it still moves. But then I was like, Oh, I'm, you've got a lifelong fan now because you just annihilated it.
0: Yeah. You know, I did a it, connecting music and comedy. I did a tour. Uh, I'm not a musician. I have no talent. I don't generally go and perform, but I was the host and interviewer for a inside the writer's room of Raymond with the writers of everybody Loves Raymond and sometimes with Ray Romano. And we would uh, tour around and I, we would get a great reception. We kept, we, like, for a year, we did, like, 50, 60 dates. All of them, I would go out and tell five jokes to warm up the crowd, bring them out, and we'd do the show. It always succeeded. Then, but, and remind you, the show is written by a bunch, a number of them were former stand-ups, you know, because of Ray's, you know, who were Ray's friends. And I went out and told, I remember we were doing, like, the, it might have been the uh, Aspen Comedy Festival or some, one of the comedy festivals. And we had what comedians like yourself would know. It's whatever time, It was like maybe it was like 4 p.m. on a Friday. It was, And we were after another show that had just killed. And it was the time when comedians know when you just hit a rough, horrible crowd that doesn't want to laugh. And I walked out and I told the same jokes that had gotten a laugh every time and nothing And I I'm like freaking out. And then the comedians come on stage and I see a smile on their faces because they're like, oh, yeah, this is a shitty crowd. We're going to have to win over. And they get they sort of they know how to turn it around. And we did by the end of that, you know, hour and a half. We had won the crowd over. But that was such a it was such a good lesson in performance, you know, and I people like me who are critics need to every once in a while know how hard it is to get up there and actually do anything. You would
2: think even during a, a horrible pandemic where people are locked away in their, in their homes for months, they'd come to comedy clubs and be ready to have a good time. And yet sometimes they still fucking suck. And you're like, would you rather go back to your home? Because we can put you there. Go, go to California and stay in your home. All right. Uh, last fact, uh, Pete based some of the songs, including the possibly unwanted advances, upon the woman and other troubling phrases on his own experiences, including his molestation as a child while he was with his grandmother. The joyful frenzy during the you are forgiven part at the end is directed at, at his abusers, those that were complicit and himself. So I wanted to ask you, do you think all great art has to come out of some kind of personal pain?
0: I think, and it's funny, I was having this discussion with a different, uh, uh, an artist today is like, I don't 90% of the artists and even politicians. It's like, if you had to go to one source of what they're, when they became artists, it has to do with daddy issues. It has to do. It's like someone once said like every song and half the great songs in, host- in rock history should be called fuck you dad. Because like, like the uh, think about it on two coasts, uh, Tom Petty, who I love Bruce Springsteen. Tom Petty for years sort of talked about his tough dad, but then later it's like he, real, he sort of got more and more honest and it was his abusive dad who told him cut his hair and rock sucks and cut his hair off against his will. Bruce Springsteen always t- wrote about like the working class dad. and But over the years, when you saw his Broadway show, if you saw it or if you see it on Netflix. I, 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 I need to watch it. It's brilliant. And yeah. he sort of, and what he eventually cops to, is like, They were both abused and Townsend, you know, the abuse has come into his his life story. There's a lot of lightness and dark and complications. But I think when you go back, like, what's Tommy about? It's not about pinball. I think it's about like a child who's been, you know, at least perceives himself as having had been brutalized and abused. And that's like the, you know, what he has to break out of. And so I think, yeah, I, I had nice parents. So that's why I have no discernible talent. Yeah, dude, I get it. I I mean, I mean, you did you meet? Wait, did my mom walk in during this? I just
2: (laughs) want to make sure that she didn't. It's great. It's great family. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. No, I think I I think even with comics, uh, there has to be there has to be pain. There, there's something about it. It really either can break you or it can make you like like you know strive for these great things to show that person to you know to have that chip on their on your shoulder. Athletes use it. Uh, you know, comics
0: act everybody. And I think those are the people yeah. that, that push through. Yeah. They Comedian, come. Comedians in particular, I, who I, you know, what's weird is, you know, getting to work with you. I do work. I've worked with a lot of the best comedians. And uh, one of the things I've sort of always found is that, you know, there is that darkness. And uh, when I, my first job was Esquire and it was a guy named David Hershey was the editor who brought me in from college to Esquire, and he, when I was first working with him, he had just tried to write a book about comedians, and he spent a year in like the comedy clubs with like Andy Kaufman and all these people who were of you know a certain moment. And he said he eventually, I think, never completed the book. I said, why? It sounds like the most fun project of all. He goes, it was the most depressing thing I, I it's like i think there's journalists who could cover wars but have like bob woodward could cover watergate but he had trouble with belushi like covering that story like i think because there's a darkness a different kind of darkness that and, and it's like it's that yeah it's a, it's a very complicated issue yeah because you because you it's you, you know a war is so many people and and
2: when it's when you like you said the belushi book is just one and then you and then especially with the way that ended, you're just like, oh, you just feel it. So like, yeah,
0: I wrote jokes for Robin Williams a, a number of times. And it was the greatest, easiest experience because you would write 20 jokes for an event. He would add on 10 more that were much better. And he'd just keep going. And that frenetic need to be funny. And he would do it. But it's funny. The last time I worked with him, I took a photo of him. And it was the first time. And he died like a year and a half later, I think. But I looked at that picture and I realized, oh yeah, maybe that need was, there's a sadness there somewhere that I wasn't looking at because you don't want to see it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, so to all the parents out there that are having like newborns, just be kind of mean to your kid. Just don't give him <laughs> all the love. Dude, exactly. my, my buddy Avery, he's, he's got his kids. He gives him way too much love. I'm like, dude, you gotta, you gotta be a little tougher, dude. Come on, man. Like, you know, like yell at him a little bit. Like, don't you want him to strive
0: for greatness? Like, yeah, my postgraduate college son is coming over in a few minutes and I will be sure to, maybe too late, but I'm going to be really mean. tonight. All right.
2: I got a few quick questions and then we're out of here. This has been a blast too, by the way. All right. um, So I think you already answered it. Your favorite song on the record, but just to back it up one more time.
0: What's sad about us is, not only my favorite song on this record, it's one of my favorite songs ever. And my kids would make fun of me because I'll always tell you a different top three, but this is always somewhere in the top ten. This song just destroys me. I'm the same. I'm the same way. All right,
2: this is this might be a harder one. Least favorite song on the record. So it, I always like to put it. If they cut this one off, this what do you think they they could leave off to make this an, a perfect perfect record?
0: Well, I'm gonna it, it it will offend some, but it would definitely I think be. Boris the Spider, just because I feel it's overexposed, like it's on compilations and things, and it it doesn't do it for me. If I could go and put every greatest hits record that has Boris the Spider on, and put uh, Whiskey Man, I'd like to re. It just it's not their fault. It's it's what radio FM radio became once it became less freeform and it became the you know you would only I think on this record you'd never hear anything on FM radio. In the last 20 years, other than maybe Boris the Spider.
2: Yeah. All right. Um, I'm seeing how to phrase this to you. Uh, what song? Hmm, how do I because I, I mean, <laughs> I, don't want, <laughs> I don't want to be Josh right now. Um, if you were setting the mood for a romantic night with your wife, what song on this record would you put on?
0: so sad about us.
2: Okay, there you go. All right. You, you can imagine I want to phrase it with with someone else, but I was like, I don't feel like I can just say fuck with David. All right. Uh, does this album deserve to be on the 500 greatest albums list?
0: Well, I'm going to tell you one thing that's weird is I spent years at Rolling Stone being like the overseer of like the best 100 albums list. Of That was part of my job. And I now – You know, a lot of what people know me for is like award shows where I write those award shows. But the absolute truth is I have never given a damn in a in terms of perspective. I don't care what anyone else says. Like you're I don't care what any magazine says of the 500 best albums. It's so music is so deeply personal for me. I don't care. I don't care really who wins the awards. I all i do and everything i write and everything the all the award shows i work on i try to honor musicians and the and music they make i don't care i don't like the like like the people say it's not a talent show it's not a competition i i do think it 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 it, it was it wouldn't be in my top 5 who albums even but i do think almost everything by the who would be on my top five, 500 because i think they're you know, so important, but again, I think most people would tell you, you know, maybe who's next would be the first and maybe Tommy would be the second. And I'm on like the Tommy BBC documentary talking about the genius of Tommy, but the absolute truth, as I said, is I'm very much about where I came in. So like, I still, if I'm going to listen to the who right now, I'm going to listen to who by numbers. I'm going to listen to who are you? Because that's where that was my entry point. And I think somehow in my mind, Those are still the places where, like, I wrote the liner notes for the Stones on 40 Licks, which was their big compilation. And Mick Jagger gave me one night to write it. And I literally had one night to write, like, a 1,500-word essay. And I went into my garage, and I put on Black and Blue, which was the first Stones album I ever knew. And no one would call that their favorite Stones album, except that's where I came in. And then, so for me, that's what I wanted to hear. And just a weird thing, I guess I'm frozen emotionally at 13. I like or that. No, I like
2: that. I like that. All right. But then I got to ask you this Does, you know, it's ranked at 384. Does it,
0: should it be lower or higher? Uh, I think it should be, what number is it? 384. I think it's 383. <laughs> It, actually, it
2: was. It, before, it was 383 on the 2003 one. You know that.
0: Okay. So like 382, maybe. I think it's, it's upgraded to 380 let's, yeah. let's see who we can knock down. Let's knock down uh, anything by uh, any polka. That's ahead of it. Bring out the skippers and deep okay
2: Alright, I was gonna ask you this question uh, earlier for a different for a different song, but uh, I feel like we should end it the podcast with this. Uh, so what was the first musician or song or moment that made you
0: hot for music? The Absolute truth was like, and again, like if you watch the 60s British Invasion CNN 60s show, they I'm talking all about the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. But for me, it was the Raspberries doing Go All The Way on like it was either midnight Don Kirscher's rock concert or midnight uh, uh, midnight special. I think it was midnight special. But I saw that they were like a, a Beatles influenced band. So I, in the 70s, had my reheated Beatlemania moment. Uh, and it was that's really what it was. And weirdly, you know who Eddie Trunk is? You know the yeah, guy. Yeah, of course. Serious, Serious <laughs> XMS. Eddie Trunk. Yeah, Eddie, I, I, who I you know sort of know and we're Twitter friends or whatever. I think he was the same one for him. Like I think that was that was the rock revolution came to me on that. But then it was Fast and Furious, and I went to in New Jersey to a record store, and my mom bought me Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John. She bought me Jim Croce, and then. I was off and running, and then and that's why I never did drugs or drank because I spent all my money on records. It was just, it was on that way. I,
2: I, for you, you may, so Fast and Furious must have been a record store because for all I thought of was Vin Diesel when you said that I was like Fast and that didn't come out back then. That's like
0: two thousand and eight, I think. Um, I did I did sit behind Vin Diesel at the uh, uh, Tyler Perry Medea reunion tour and that was a, that was an experience. You know, we were, we were the two white people at the Medea tour. Uh, that's <laughs> even cooler now. Um, all right. Uh, anything you want to promote, buddy? Go ahead. Uh, I guess um, there's a, uh, a NBC special, Brad Paisley and Blake Shelton, uh, February 14th. Uh, if, if, uh, if you could still watch that on NBC, that's like fun country music one. And then the Grammys are, a month later, March 14th. And that's by Trevor Noah, a guy who did get paid successfully by uh, comedy central and who's, who's very funny and who I think should, you should have on this show. Uh, we're trying. We're tr- Dude, you don't think <laughs> we're, t- we are trying.
2: I want him. I want Tony Kornheiser. Oh, I want Mel Brooks so bad. I want to, I want to talk to Mel Brooks so bad. And Trevor, yeah, I'd, I met him. We we did JFL together. I mean, he of course did a huge theater and I did the catacombs, but I mean, <laughs> but I mean, it's like he's he was a super nice guy and I mean, that's what's so cool about David even about this is that like it's i just want to i love music hits people differently and some people it really touches and, and like me and like you and and i want to get to that center for so many famous people that i look up to to find out that album that that touched them and and we will and i think that's no, no, what's so great I, about music
0: what you're saying about music is funny like i remember i realized there's no one who doesn't feel about music that way, and I once was doing a White House show writing a White House special, and it was Clinton we were going to war he was he was being called off to talk like you know to deal with a a foreign crisis, and we were yet yeah, we were rehearsing with Al Green and he snapped down because he did not want to miss al green and you know and I remember looking at that and going like this is the the truth is I like you know, there's nothing more important than this music emotionally. Now, maybe he should have been dealing with. The, yeah, he's
2: like, do go ahead and tell Rumsfeld to go and handle that with Gore." I mean, the whole Saddam issue is gonna be fine. I got to watch El Green. He's about to do. He's about to do uh, uh, <laughs> love and happiness. Uh, <laughs> I love that. Oh man, David, this was great. Uh, I mean it. I had such a great time, buddy. Thank you for coming on, man.
0: No, thank you for having me. What did I tell you? What did
2: I tell you? The one and only David Wild. I'm telling you guys, he knew it all. Find him on all social media at Wild About Music. David on Instagram and on Twitter at Wild About Music. Make sure you watch the Grammys coming up now. We just listened to The Who from 1966. Our new music pick this week is my friend, Tull Wilkenfeld. Tull is a bassist. That Will Melt Your Faces Is that sound racist? I didn't mean to be Dr. Seuss right there Tull is an incredible singer-songwriter Whose career began performing alongside The likes of Jeff Beck Prince, Eric Clapton, Herbie Hancock Mick Jagger She is one of the most incredible bass players I've ever seen in my life And her new album, Love Remains Is the shit She's open for the Who She's inspired by the Who And you're listening to her new song Killing Me off of that record, Love Remains. And you can find links to the music on our website, the500podcast.com. And if you're in a band and you were directly influenced by one of these albums or artists and you want your music featured on the 500, send your song to 500podcasts at gmail.com. Make sure you put the album and artist that influenced you in the subject. Yeah. Next week. Talking Heads Week as we go deep into their 1978 sophomore record. More songs about buildings and food. You got some homework to do. Listen to the record. Doogle doogle. I'll stay please.